listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Monday, January 28, 2019. My apologies for having been away these last two weeks. I caught a bad cold that led to a lung infection, and I haven't done much of anything for the last fortnight except sleep and listen to podcasts. My very grateful thanks to Oliver Hotham for filling in as host on last week's Roundtable podcast, which I enjoyed immensely. I'm sure everybody else did too. Today, I'm joined by Christopher Green, who is International Crisis Group's Korean Peninsula expert. He is the former head of international affairs for Daily NK here in Seoul and translator of the memoir of the late Hwang jung Yop. Alongside his work with Crisis Group, Chris researches North Korean and defector identity questions at Leiden University in the Netherlands, which is, of course, where I got my MA from a a few short years ago. He'll be talking to me about moving towards a long-term peace on the Korean Peninsula, as well as different ways of looking at North Korea. But before that, an announcement. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. Also, you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code PODCAST at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. Now, thanks and welcome to Chris Green. Hello. Hi. uh, Tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you came to looking at Korea. Undergraduate was environmental science. Uh, Graduate school was international relations. Uh, 1997, when the late Hwang Jang-yop defected to South Korea, uh, I became fascinated by this sort of Cold War-ish stories in a post-Cold War world. Uh, and my fascination only deepened thereafter, and, and now here we are. Now, you're currently completing your PhD at Leiden University. Uh, we won't go into this research too deeply on this podcast, but could you tell us in a sentence or two what your doctoral research is all about? I've been working since about 2013 on questions of defector identity and North Korean identity, resettlement processes, successful and unsuccessful resettlement, working with uh, Stephen Denny of the University of Toronto, My PhD research is part of that constellation of various projects dealing with uh, identity questions featuring North Korean respondents. And do do those issues uh, touch on what might happen after a possible future unification event? Absolutely. My most recent work with uh, Mr. Denny was about uh, resettlement of North Korean defectors. We published a paper in the KEI, Korean Economic Institute of America, academic paper series uh, called Unification in Action, which asks about what we can learn from current resettlement uh, for the future in a sort of hypothetical unified Korea. Excellent. All right. So uh, let's talk about your um, your job at the International Crisis Group, the ICG. Uh, previously, Dan Pinkston, who was a guest on this podcast last year, he was the ICG rep in Korea. Now it's you, although technically you're not resident in Korea right now. Uh, first of all, what is the ICG? What can you tell us a little bit Uh, about its history, its goals, and who runs and funds it. ICG's overriding aim is to avoid outbreaks of deadly conflict by engaging all parties to those conflicts in dialogue before conflict can erupt, talking to everybody to try and triangulate positions and reach mutually beneficial outcomes. So what's its current role in Korea? Is it uh, simply investigating the the two sides and uh, trying to provide outcomes and solutions? Yes. I mean, if you think about ICG's work elsewhere, it's often in situations that are very fluid, weak governments, non-state actors, Middle East and North Africa, obviously very different situation in East Asia, very hard states, significant military capabilities. When 2017's events occurred, the concern of ICG was to ensure that it wasn't allowed to get quote unquote out of hand. And with the turn of 2018, obviously that goal 
had been reached one way or another. Since when, we've been trying to find sort of productive solutions that push dialogue forward. There's a lot of uh, very polarized, very politicized viewpoints about dialogue between the United States and North Korea. A lot of extreme pessimism or extreme optimism, neither of which is terribly helpful. We are interested in finding incremental steps that can lead all parties forward so that productive outcomes can result. And who does the ICG seek to influence in doing this? Is it uh, talking to policymakers, talking to presidents and foreign ministers? In the context of the Korean Peninsula, we want to influence government policymakers on all sides because there's a certain disconnect between each government's awareness of what the other governments are willing to do or willing to accept. So not just North and South Korea, but also the United States and perhaps China as well? Absolutely, yes. And do you see any signs that they're listening? There's certainly signs that the United States is listening. The South Korean government is also listening. I've had lots of very productive meetings with uh, present and former members of the South Korean administration who are definitely interested in the proposals we're putting forward. It's a lot harder to judge whether the authoritarian governments, China and North Korea, uh, are listening as well. So has the International Crisis Group in general been heartened by developments on the peninsula since Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech of 2018? Well, as an organization that is designed to avoid deadly conflict, yes. Mm. Um, What happened at the beginning of 2018 was not fortuitous. There was a process there and one could have predicted that it would go this way. Indeed, uh, I did predict that in my writings for Crisis Group. Um, But whatever whatever the causes of it were, whatever the process was, there is now an opening for dialogue. That dialogue is ongoing. The dialogue, I think, could have been conducted more effectively. uh, And that's the kind of thing that Crisis Group is investigating now. All right. So before we dive into your most recent report, I want to talk to you uh, briefly about two Canadian men. Uh, One of them is a colleague of yours at the International Crisis Group. And the other is a mutual friend of both of ours. So I'm talking about uh, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Uh, For listeners who may not know, Michael Kovrig is a former Canadian diplomat. And uh, I believe he headed the ICG in Hong Kong. Is that correct? And Michael Spavor uh, has lived on the border between China and North Korea for over seven years. Uh, Both of them were detained by Chinese state security police on December 10th and have been charged with threatening Chinese state security, uh, although we don't know more than that at this stage. Uh, And I know that it's a sensitive and ongoing issue for both men and for the ICG, but are you allowed to comment briefly on their cases? Not in any detail, no. Do you expect the charges to have any substance or are they simply in the wrong place with the wrong passports at the wrong time? I wouldn't want to comment on the nature of the Chinese legal system. It is not my expectation that the charges against Michael Kovrig would have any substance. I, or Spavor for that matter, but I know Michael Kovrig better. Uh, all I can say is we've worked very hard to get uh, a better level of understanding of China, of North Korea, of South Korea. We've worked very closely together to do this over the last two years. Uh, there is no substance that I know of to any of it, and I would just like to see two of my friends released. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and me too. All right. Well, now let's uh, talk a little bit about um, the lens through which people view North Korea and Korean Peninsula issues. Now, you and I are friends outside the podcast. We've talked about these issues a lot, and uh, two things. Uh, that keep getting raised and that set you apart from many Western observers of the careers, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, firstly your focus on institutions and structures rather than, uh, quote-unquote, big men and personalities in politics. Could you speak to that a little bit? It's born of the belief that there's only a limit to what any single individual can do and that institutions and the structures underpinning the histories, the existence of states, will always assert themselves to place limits on what any single individual, no no matter how ambitious they may be, can do. And North Korea is a pretty good example of that. I mean, 
as far as limits to political influence goes, Kim Jong-un probably faces fewer than any other leader that you can probably imagine. Nevertheless, North Korea's history, North Korea's already existing institutional structure, uh, and the nature of Northeast Asian politics will place constraints on what he is able to do. The political economy of North Korea is not simply a case of keeping the leader happy. It's much more complicated than that. And the political economies of places like South Korea and the United States are even more complicated. So my argument is, yes, individuals can have an influence, but their influence is constrained by an awful lot of other factors. Now, uh, the, the second thing that uh, sets you apart, and we've talked about this more recently, is your um, willingness and interest to see a lot of inter-Korean actions and negotiations through the lens of political economy. You just mentioned political, political economy in North Korea, uh, also political economy in South Korea. Could you talk about that a bit? It's best to talk about it through an example. Until pretty recently, the dominant government narrative on dialogue with North Korea in the United States was that North Korea would have to denuclearize entirely before it would see any benefits from those actions. That was a problem not only because North Korea would be unlikely to see that as a reasonable pathway, because denuclearization carries enormous costs for North Korea, but it's also a difficult situation to put South Korea in. Why? Because South Korea is not only interested in uh, peace and reconciliation with North Korea for the kind of reasons that we as outsiders often think, such as uh, brotherly relationships, the desire for reunification, a normative desire that these people with a shared culture and shared history and shared language should want to unify and live together, and that it was great power influence that divided us and we must bring ourselves back together. Those things are relevant, but they're not the entire story. And the political economy of the Moon administration's engagement with North Korea also involves achieving certain economic gains so that the vast majority of South Korean people, especially younger people, who don't really have a strong interest in North Korea, don't necessarily have a strong interest in unification, can see that this process with this country that, although we do have a shared history and culture, we don't really know that well anymore, is worth doing. So that means achieving economic gains for, of course, Chebol Corporation, Samsung, LG, Hyundai, SK, and uh, lesser-known names, small and medium-sized enterprises, which are the kind of companies that succeed in places like the Kaesong Industrial Complex, which I think we're going to discuss in a minute. Yeah. And then, of course, the workforce of South Korea. Employment would rise, incomes would rise if there were infrastructure investment going on with, with North Korea. Now, I'm not so saying that such things, economic concerns ought to transcend questions of denuclearization or North Korea's missile programs or the things that the US has been concerned about vis-a-vis -vis North Korea for uh, more than two decades. But I am saying that we need to consider the pol political economy of any actor involved in this process in order to achieve mutually acceptable outcomes further down the track. Now, you've said to me... Uh off-air that this consideration of political economy, particularly on the South Korean part, is largely ignored or overlooked, in particularly in US discourse on, uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Is there a danger in that? Uh, there is a danger in that. I wouldn't like to single out the US. It sounds as if I'm saying the US is more ignorant of other countries than other countries are of the US. I think because the US has such economic power and outsized influence, those areas of misunderstanding or ignorance can have outsized consequences. And therefore, I want to single out the US for that reason. Okay. Now, let's move on to the uh, ICT's latest report on the Korean Peninsula. You were kind enough to uh, send it to me before 
this interview, uh, and this report came out last December. So our listeners, if they want to follow up, they can download it from the ICG website? Yes, they can. Is that ICG.org? It's Crisis Group. Crisis Group. Yeah, and there's a Korean Peninsula page, so you can Google the Korean Peninsula page. Fantastic. Okay, so the uh, the title for this latest report is Time for a Modest Deal, How to Get U.S.-North Korean Talks Moving Forward. And it came out on December 17th, just about a week before Christmas. Uh, now, in the last two weeks, we've seen some talks at two different levels taking place in both Washington, D.C. and Stockholm, Sweden, uh, between the U.S. and North Korean sides. And we also have the promise of a second Trump-Kim summit in Vietnam by the end of February. So is this ICG report already obsolete, or have some of the suggestions in it been more or less followed by both sides? Or how do you see it? It's certainly not obsolete. If you think about the, the, the way our crisis groups' reports have been released since uh, Fire and Fury, which came out in January of 2018. At that time, we were seeking to avoid escalation. Then we were looking for a way to make more concrete the dialogue process between North Korea and the United States. And then with Time for a Modest Deal, we were riffing off the back of the Singapore summit, which produced a declaration, but it was a little vague, with some phased measures for both sides, North Korea and the United States, that would allow for progress in talks going forward. Because at the time it was published, in particular, you'll remember that there was cancellation of talks between uh, the North Koreans and the US, both in August and again in November. That mm. was interspersed with a visit by Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State Pompeo, to Pyongyang in October. There was also some diplomatic maneuverings in September. But overall, it was hard to see the situation as anything more than anything more than sort of frozen in aspic. So we were trying to provide a sensible proposal that would allow uh, dialogue to move forward. And what we were suggesting was to take Kim Jong-un's suggestion that the Yongbyon nuclear complex could be closed down and exchange that for something which, to return to the political economy question, would provide succor to South Korean people and the South Korean administration, which is reopening the Kaesong Industrial Complex. So is it obsolete? Absolutely not. Have the suggestions been adopted? Well, we'll have to wait mm. for the second summit and thereafter to see whether that has been the case or not. Okay. Now, in the report, you write that the current peaceful atmosphere on the Korean Peninsula is, quote, far from a stable resting place. And you go on to say that the, the arrangement is, is shallow as a matter of formal commitment, there is nothing writing, and narrow as a matter of scope. What's the significance of that? I mean, there are, isn't there some strength in the uh, the vagueness of the agreement that Trump and Kim signed in uh, Singapore last June? There is some strength in the vagueness of it. There is some value in forming personal relationships between leaders as a precursor to uh, getting engaged in, in more concrete dialogue. But at the same time, you can't sustain that indefinitely. And if we think about North Korea has in Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech, for example, Kim Jong-un stated explicitly that we're not producing, proliferating, using nuclear weapons, etc. and so forth. He did not say anything about space launches. There's no reason why he should have, right? But there, he did not say anything about space launches. He didn't talk about short and medium range missile launches, any of those things. So if we hypothetically imagine one of those events were to take place, Right? If the North Koreans decide to launch a medium-range missile, God forbid, over Japan, for mm. example, what happens to the dialogue then? Right, We need to get these things codified. It was a great start, what happened in 2018. On all sides was a good start, but it isn't sustainable for the long term. We need to have a little bit more concrete assurance of what is and is not permissible on all sides. So you write also in the report that uh, the contours of a cred credible quid pro quo are already on the table. Is that what you were referred to just before, that the uh, North Korea would close all or, or part of Yongbyon in exchange for 
for example, the uh, reopening of the Kaesong Industrial Complex. That's right. Uh, Kim Jong-un has already placed Yongbyon on the table. The South Koreans have made it quite clear that they want to reopen Kaesong, but they are committed to adhering to the international sanctions regime, and therefore North Korea will need to do a little more, or there will have to be more productive talks with the United States before the Kaesong reopening can happen. That is not a unilateral choice by South Korea at all. But all of these things are out in the open, and it's simply a case of discussing them to the point where everybody is satisfied. Is the closing of all or part of Yongbyon significant, or has that particular facility outlived its usefulness? There is a debate ongoing about the usefulness of Yongbyon to the North Korean government now. I'm of the opinion that it's of relatively limited use, but technical experts in the United States and elsewhere are more interested in seeing it closed because they believe it is a useful part of the North Korean nuclear program. Uh, help, my, uh, help me to re- recollect it. Uh, Yongbyon produces both uh, highly enriched uranium and plutonium. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So both uh, arms of the North Korean nuclear program uh, have their seeds in, the, that's mixing metaphors there, but have their origins in, in Yongbyon. That's right. But you'll recall from when U.S. nuclear experts and, and, and intelligence experts were taken to Yongbyon in, what was it, 2010, and they were shown North Korean centrifuges in action on the Yongbyon site. It was apparent to them at that time that this was not the only place where North Korea had centrifuges and that these had probably been put there in order to demonstrate that North Korea could do that it was very unlikely that they would be the only place in North Korea where centrifuges existed. So that's just an example of the way North Korea has been able to distribute its nuclear and missile programs across the country at various sites, and therefore closing Yongbyon, whilst A, symbolically important, and B, also technically useful, is not the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in the report, you refer to a four-step path. Let's drill into that now. What is the four-step path? Each step is actually quite similar, but they're more difficult and they take longer to achieve. So the first step is to formalize the kind of informal agreements that have been reached so far. That might mean the Yongbyon for uh, Kaesong deal as a way of kickstarting that process. But the second step then would be, for example, North Korea signing the nuclear test ban treaty, much more difficult. North Korea is not predisposed towards signing international treaties and and, and adhering to international norms. And then we deepen and deepen the process, pursuing eventually uh, denuclearization of North Korea. So that would be the fourth step, would it? Complete uh, denuclearization of North Korea. Mm. Okay, so as you say, that they sound similar, but they're more concrete or, uh, or, or deeper versions of of the previous steps. Yes. Okay. Now, personally, taking off your ICG hat for a moment, uh, how likely do you assess assess that this four-step path would be followed by the different parties in the game here? At this moment in time, I think imagining the fourth step becoming practical reality is rather hard. But that's the point of making incremental steps between now and then. And of course, other things would have to happen outside the nuclear negotiations that would facilitate this. At the moment, North Korea has a specific view of its own national security that, of course, doesn't allow for denuclearization. That I would expect to remain the case for some significant period of time, which is why expecting full denuclearization by this time next Tuesday is absurd. Mm. Right. Uh, But by the end, with specific steps taken by all parties to achieve economic integration, political integration... Uh, a little bit more uh, communication between the societies of the countries involved, we would hope that that endgame would be possible eventually. What about an end-of-war declaration? Is that part of the, the four steps, or would that, could that be in, like an adjunct to it, perhaps? In 2018, North Korea vacillated between prioritizing sanctions relief 
and prioritizing the end of war declaration. I think broadly speaking, in the summer, the end of war declaration tended to be spoken about more. But towards the end of the year, sanctions relief tended to be spoken about more. Mm. And then in his New Year's address, Kim Jong-un brought these two strands back together to show that these two sides of the coin are both important. But North Korea has also said that an end of war declaration would be something that the Americans should have done anyway, and therefore it shouldn't be used as a bargaining chip. Now, to my mind, that is trying to increase the value of North Korea's negotiating position. But there is some... Uh, truth to the fact that you need steps on both sides of that equation uh, if you want to draw North Korea into the dialogue process. What would such a declaration look like and and what would it mean? An end of war declaration would be the easier version of a peace treaty in that it wouldn't have to be ratified by Congress. So it wouldn't have any legal weight, but it would be to declare openly that the Korean War is over. That is in theory supposed to lead to greater security for all parties on the Korean Peninsula and open up more space for dialogue to proceed in other areas. So is that something that uh, Donald Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un could simply just sign this between the two of them and declare it, you know, declare the war ended? The participation of South Korea and the Chinese would be strongly advised. Well, I was going to ask about that, yeah. I mean, the Chinese, of course, were signatories to the... the 1953 armistice agreement. South Korea, of course, was not, uh, which is why for many decades North Korea was able to, or at least attempted to ignore South Korea's uh, uh, role or agency in the Absolutely. discussions. Yeah. Uh, but you're and saying they still that, do when they when they feel like it too. Right, and so you're saying that ideally all four parties should be uh, parties of an end-of-war declaration. It's up to the negotiators to decide who should actually sign the thing, but you absolutely need to get buy-in from all four parties. Okay. Now, uh, so let's talk about sanctions. Uh, What is the current state of the various sanction regimes in place that target North Korea? I mean, we've got some uh, UN sanctions, some US sanctions, some South Korean unilateral sanctions. Are they holding? Are they working? The sanctions currently in place appear to still be, largely speaking, working, yes. There is some evidence of sanctions violations on the North Korea-China side, but if we consider the current situation relative to the past, we can see that those are still comparatively trivial. For example, we have seen no evidence of North Korean coal flowing across the land border into China. And when you think about the value of that trade alone was more than a billion dollars a year back at the height of North Korea-China trade, none of that is happening. So we can point to sanctions violations on the side of the Chinese, but the value in total pales in comparison to full trade of the past. There's also been some stories, we've had some here in NK News in the last couple of weeks, about sanctions violations on the part of South Korean companies too. Uh, Do you also see them as being relatively insignificant? Politically significant, but economically, yes, fairly insignificant for the North Korean state. Uh, Now, North Korea has been very vocal and, and repetitive in talking about sanctions relief that it wants. Yes. It hasn't been so consistent on the reopening of the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Uh, it's, it's, In fact, I think it's been somewhat ambivalent about it ever since it was shuttered by the South Korean government in uh, February 2016. First, North Korea, I think, from memory, said that they wanted to nationalize the, the complex and hand it over to the military. Uh, and then it said it, it was open to reopening the thing. But then when South Korean businessmen who had factories there wanted to visit, Pyongyang said they weren't welcome, but now they are welcome. So what exactly would the opening of KIC mean to North Korea? I think I think it's important, uh, the story you just told, because I agree with you that Kaesong is not a huge piece of the pie for North Korea. We just talked about sanctions violations on the uh, North Korea-China border. If we talk about reopening Kaesong, we would be talking about 
approximately $200 million a year at the level Kaesong was at when it was closed. $200 million a year traveling from South Korea to North Korea. That's over five years, only the same amount that North Korea was able to make in one year from coal. So I think from a, an economic standpoint, obviously, it's of relatively limited value. But then all of these limited measures also add up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so North Korea can't afford to ignore all of them uh, from an economic perspective. But in addition, there is the argument which was put forward to me by the head of the Kaesong Industrial Complex Foundation, uh, with whom I had a meeting a couple of weeks ago, that North Korea's perception is if we can't even run and South Korea's perception for that matter, at least on the left, if we can't run this inter-Korean manufacturing zone properly and without political interference, how on earth are we going to achieve a deeper level of integration? Mm. How on earth are we going to achieve a any kind of, and this is of course what the North Koreans have expressed an interest in in the past, low-level confederation with South Korea, for example. Right. Uh, if we can't do the case industrial complex, none of this would appear to be possible. So what concrete steps vis-a-vis sanctions would this require in South Korea in the United States and at the United Nations Security Council level to, to reopen Kaesong? Could it simply be carved out or given a waiver or do you know, do uh, action, specific actions need to be taken to, uh, to allow it? Well, given that in the UN Security Council, China and Russia have expressed support for sanctions relief, it would be the case of, of, of the veto-wielding well, or the permanent members uh, agreeing that the reopening of Kaesong was a reasonable step and providing a sanctions waiver for that specific activity. As you know, the Russians, for example, have a sanctions uh, carve-out for their project at Rason, uh, exporting through Rason port. The South Koreans have unilateral sanctions, the May 24th sanctions, in place against companies that do business with North Korea. But of course, the Kaesong Industrial Complex continued to operate even after those sanctions were brought in, right. implying that you could reopen the complex without with removing those sanctions. Although, frankly, uh, from a political standpoint, removing those sanctions would not be hard. Symbolically, it would be a bit more politically tricky to do. So actually, the reopening of Kaesong is, compared to some other things, quite easy to do which is one of the US side the US side the US would have to agree across the board that reopening Kaesong was okay and provide sanctions waivers and allow for things like financial transactions given the relatively the 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 low value of Kaesong industrial complex to the North Korean economy I mean you said it's only 200 million dollars a year uh, which is just one-fifth of the annual uh, exports of coal that North Korea were, were selling to China so is that a reason why reopening Kaesong would be uh, relatively less controversial to the United States as a form of sanctions relief? Well, that and the fact that you have to calibrate the value of the sanctions relief you give against the value of closing Yongbyon, which is why the debate that I mentioned earlier on between experts as to how valuable Yongbyon is, is of course salient here. It was put to me on more than one occasion that the North Koreans would want Yongbyon to seem like a higher value, I mean, of course, it sounds commonsensical now that we're talking about it, right. would want Yongbyon to seem like a higher value prize, preferably, than it, than it may be. And in that case, if they were able to, to persuade the United States or South Korea that Yongbyon was worth more than Kaesong, then we would have a problem. But my personal view and the view of uh, my colleagues is that this deal is a reasonable one on both sides. Now, last year, uh, South and North Korea opened this uh, joint liaison offer smack bang in the middle of the shuttered Kaesong Industrial Complex as a, you know, a, a hub for communication on, at the working level between South and North Korea. But having it there, right there in Kaesong, is there a, a significance of it, of having it located there? I would hope the South Korean government worked out that that symbolic resonance would be there 
But I think there are lots of practical reasons why, if you're going to open an inter-Korean liaison office, you would open it in the Kaesong Industrial Complex. Specifically, the fact that all of the infrastructure is there. The systems for allowing staff to go in and out are there. If you situated it almost anywhere else in the border region, uh, you would be facing an awful lot of infrastructure and other questions that here you don't have to worry about. Is it an intended or unintended way of creating cracks in the sanctions regime? I don't think the Kaesong Liaison Office is an intentional attempt to put cracks in the sanctions regime. I am not saying that South Korea might not be trying to put cracks in the sanctions regime elsewhere. I wouldn't want to speak to that. But I don't think the Kaesong Liaison Office was specifically an attempt to do that. Okay, now speaking of South Korean motivations, let's uh, talk a bit about President Moon. He's very... Uh, keen, of course, to to see international uh, inter-Korean uh, reconciliation. And in your report, you write that, quote, South Korean President Moon Jae-in gets credit domestically for lowering tensions on the peninsula, including through a raft of recent de-escalatory measures. But one perhaps unintended consequence is that South Koreans are now shifting their attention to the potential economic benefits of rapprochement and wondering when the payoff will come, unquote. Now, you, you've mentioned before that South Koreans will want to see economic benefits from this. I, is this perhaps what the opening of Kaesong will do for him? Yes. I mean, we have uh, legislative elections in South Korea in the April of 2020. And in 2022, there will be a presidential election, of course. So between now and then, and with the fact that South Korea's economy is facing significant headwinds in mind, the opening of the Kaesong Industrial Complex would show to the South Korean people that they were seeing some benefits, economic benefits, of engagement with North Korea. Absolutely. Would it have a tangible impact on South Korea's unemployment rate, youth unemployment rate, uh, any of the other indicators um, of South Korea's economic health? No, it wouldn't, but it would be symbolically a very interesting first step. And it would imply that North Korea had an interest in greater economic economic opening thereafter, of course. South Korean presidents are, of course, limited to a single term. So surely uh, this kind of appeasing the electorate is less important in South Korea than it is in, you know, for example, the United States. Well, that would be to imply that a president only has an individualistic interest in re-election, right? There's also the need to keep the Democratic Party in power from Moon's perspective. And he will inevitably have his eye on who he would like to stand as presidential candidate as his quote-unquote successor. So there is, of course, institutional and political continuity that they are seeking, even though it's only a one-term presidency. President Moon was the uh, chief of staff for a while of the late President Norma Hyun. Uh, what lessons do you think President Moon learned from the Sunshine Policy period of 1998 to 2008? I think the main lesson he learned was probably that you have to bring your international partners along for the ride. In the normal Hyun era, the relationship between the United States and South Korea deteriorated markedly. That contributed to, but was certainly not the only factor in the eventual collapse of the Sunshine Policy. In addition, President Moon has learned that in a democratic system like South Korea's, you need to institutionalize, to say that word yet again, yeah. institutionalize the agreements and the structures that you create in order that they can survive a change of political party at the top of political power in the country. So in 2008, obviously, North Korea's first nuclear test in 2006 was a watershed moment. But in 2008, when President Im Yong-bak came to power, and then in July 2008, when a South Korean tourist was shot at the Mount Kumgang Tourism Resort, these were just three of the factors that contributed to the eventual collapse of sunshine policy politics, basically. President Moon, I think it's a hard ask, but he is clearly aware, at least, that you should try to 
create structures that can transcend changes of political power. Is he also more wary of uh, the appearance of there being unilateral transfers of of money and goods to North Korea? Absolutely, he is aware of that. He has spoken constantly. It's one of his, his main refrains that North Korea needs to make progress on the issues that matter to the United States, that is denuclearization first and foremost, before significant economic opening between the two Koreas can take place. North Korea has pushed back against that and is trying to encourage anti-American leftist sentiment in South Korea, trying to put cracks in the US-ROK alliance. I'm not saying that's all they're doing, but it's certainly one thing they are trying to do. President Moon has at least so far remained steadfast, and I have not seen any evidence that that will cease to be the case. You just mentioned earlier uh, the shooting of um, the South Korean tourists at the Kumgang uh, Mount Kumgang Tourist Resort. Um, is the reopening of Mount Kumgang also important to North Korea? Do we see this at the same level of, uh, say, the reopening of, of Kaesong Industrial Complex, or is it not so much part of the picture? I think it's less important, but it has, from, from an economic standpoint for North Korea, less important. They wouldn't earn as much money from that as they would earn uh, from the Kaesong Industrial Complex. But it's also... Again, it's got symbolic resonance right, because not only is Mount Kumgang a place of tourism, it's also a place of separated family reunions, mm. right? So it acquired a certain symbolism for that too. And it would demonstrate a desire to pursue reconciliation on some level if separated family reunions could be institutionalized in some way. Now, in the conclusion of your December report, you write, the leader-level summit anticipated at the beginning of the new year presents an opportunity to remedy the current situation through a modest deal that begins to address key stakeholders' long-term interests. Such a deal may be the surest way to create a path forward for negotiations, further distance from the parties, that further distance the parties from the dangerous brinksmanship of 2017, and set up 2019 to be a year of slow but welcome progress on the Korean Peninsula. Do you really see that happening? I stated internally to my ICG colleagues at the beginning, no, the end of 2017, before the rapprochement of early 2018, that when North Korea turns towards dialogue, it tends to be interested in doing so for at least three years. Uh, that's a rather arbitrary number, but we have seen in the past at least three years of relative openness to dialogue with other parties uh, from North Korea. Uh, so I would say that 2019 and into 2020, is the window of opportunity. The debate, I think, going on now is concerns from some people who uh, have strong doubts about North Korea's motivations is that North Korea will undertake incremental steps, but those those steps will be, will be disconnected and that they won't lead to longer-term dialogue structures. They won't be part of a movement towards a firmer peace, that they will just be sort of appeasement measures that look good on CNN. That's the concern of people, particularly on the right in American and South Korean politics, I think. So the question of being able to institutionalize dialogue structures and being be able to institutionalize this peace process more broadly, that bit is going to be tougher. But I do expect 2019 to be a year of relative quiet. How important is it that uh, all parties in the negotiating process be uh, honest dealers? Very important. Uh, very important. I think all parties have interests. Some of those interests are quite clearly stated and publicly stated. Some of those interests are not. So I don't think it is unique to North Korea that they would uh, not have all of their cards on the table. But I do think a relative degree of sincerity is necessary for progress to be made, yes. And do you see that South Korea is in a uh, unique and tricky position trying to sometimes be an honest broker between the US and North Korea and at times also being a a negotiating partner 
on the you know on the other side of the table from North Korea. Yes, absolutely. It's a very difficult position that the Moon administration has been in ever since coming to power in uh, the second quarter of 2017. I have a lot of sympathy with the difficulties that they they are facing. Lastly, can you give us a sneak preview of what is to come in the next ICG report and when will that be released? Our next report forms part of our series on the economics of conflict and it is a collaboration between myself and a South Korean political economist based in the United States. We are looking at the economics of the Keso Industrial Complex, reviewing proprietary data on the success or failure of firms that entered the, the complex Uh, to see whether the standard conventional narrative in South Korea of Kaesong as a unilateral transfer of resources, I believe that was your phrase earlier on, Mm. unilateral transfer of resources from South to North actually holds up to scrutiny. We have found that companies that entered the Kaesong Industrial Complex, and we should remember that we are talking about a period from 2007. I know that wasn't when the complex uh, began, but that was when mass entry of firms began. 2007 through to the closure in February of 2016, uh, which was a period when the world economy was, of course, shaken by the Mm. financial crisis. Nevertheless, companies that were in Kaesong did grow, their assets grew, their basic situation improved, they actually employed more people in South Korea as well uh, as a consequence of the success in the industrial complex, suggesting that the complex from a purely economic perspective was successful. And then integrating that into a political economy analysis of the problems faced by all the parties to the Korean Peninsula crisis. So it will be, on the one hand, an economic look at Kaesong, and on the other hand, a look at the political economy of engagement, broadly speaking. That does sound like a very interesting read. When will that, uh, when's that expected to be released? Oh, we would expect to get it out there before the second summit. But when's the second summit, Jacko? Well, uh, by, <laughs> by the end of February, right? Right, 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 of course. Yeah. We don't have a date yet. We don't have a date, we don't have a location, but yes. Yeah. So, uh, Thank you once again to Chris Green for coming on the NK News podcast. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, nknews.org. NK News, of course, is the leading repository of North Korean research, news, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions too podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership, so please review us after listening and you might win. And also you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks and listen again next time. 